Well, today we're carrying on the book of Daniel, week number two. The book of Daniel really is a, is a powerful and incredible book. And the Bible, the Old Testament particularly, can be a little confusing for some. So I want to give you a little kind of a, a snapshot of the Old Testament. One of the reasons it's confusing is because it's not written chronologically. It's, it's written in sections. So the first section of the Old Testament is what we call the history section. It's the, the historical events of the Bible. Then you have a poetic section of the Bible. It's Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, which we just finished studying as a church family. Then you have the prophetic section, the major prophets and the minor prophets. And again, the major prophets aren't better than the minor prophets. It's not like baseball. They're just longer than the minor prophets. Um, But the major prophets are simply longer than the minor prophets, and that's how they get their name. Daniel fits into the major prophets. Daniel is six chapter or twelve chapters long. Six chapters is history. Six chapters is all prophetic, dealing with the end times. We're going to talk about that the last week of this series. And in fact, a third of the Bible is prophetic. A third of the Bible deals with future events, things that have not happened yet, uh, coming events and and prophetic events and leads us to a question that we should ask, why? Why does so much of the Bible deal with the prophetic? Why does so much of the Bible deal with stuff that has not happened yet? Future events, well, I believe two reasons. One, God wants to warn and prepare you so you're not deceived. God wants you to know what's going to happen so that you're ready and you're prepared so that when rumors of wars and, and things begin to happen around the world, you're not freaking out over it. You know exactly what's going on. God prepared you for that. He warned you about it. And then two, I believe God wants to encourage you. He wants to encourage you to know that he is in control. He's going to take care of it all. You don't need to be afraid. And so as we study Daniel, Daniel uh, was kidnapped, uh, taken as a slave from his home country. There was a king named Nebuchadnezzar. He was king of Babylon. Babylon is modern day Iraq. They invaded Israel. They destroyed Israel, took all the people, slaves, captives. We call it the Babylonian captivity or the exile period of the Bible. Daniel was one of those slaves. They said he was 15 years old, scholars believe, when he was taken to Babylon. And he lived there until he was 90, served under four kings in Babylon uh, until he died. And so today we're going to study two of those chapters, chapter three and chapter six, because I really believe your faith is going to be tested in your lifetime. Your faith is going to be, there's going to come a point in your life where you're going to be tested and you're going to be asked or forced to do something that violates your belief as a Christian. And the question is, what are you going to do? And today we're going to study two of the greatest tests of the book of Daniel. It's the greatest test of the end times. That's why this is a prophetic book that has modern application today. And and you'll see it's a test that has been throughout all of time. So let's jump into chapter three. Verse 1, you can follow along with your notes with me. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and language, listen to the king's command. Now, I just want to point out that that statement has a lot of modern day application to us today. This is what you are commanded to do. This is the king's command. We are commanding you to do this. 
And that's already happening. I'm going to show you in a minute. It's already happening in America today. And it's one thing for there to be idols. We know there's always going to be idols. There's always going to be things people worship ahead of God. You know, we have a lot of idols, sports, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of things that become idols that, that take our worship ahead of God. It's one thing for there to be idols. It's another thing for you to be forced and commanded to worship those things. And that's what's taking place here. Verse 5 says, When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, zither, lyre, harps, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace, the fiery furnace that many of us heard about as children. And I want you to look at the motivation of worship here. The motivation is fear. That's what Satan always uses. He wants to motivate you with fear. He can't motivate you with love because he's unlovable. And so, so he motivates you with fear. There's going to be horrible consequences. If you don't do this, you're going to die. You're forced to do this. We're going to, we're going to destroy you if you do not do this. And notice when we worship God, the motivation is always love. We don't worship God out of fear. We worship God out of love. We don't, we don't worship God because we're afraid of God, because he's some cosmic cop in the sky waiting to catch us doing something wrong. No, we worship God because he's good, because he loves us, because he gave his life for us. We worship him out of love. That's why we continually tell you at this church, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to pray. You don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to give. You don't have to serve. You don't have to do anything because if you have to do it, you're probably doing it because you're afraid or because of fear, because of manipulation. This is not a church you have to do anything. This is a church we get to serve. We get to give. We get to worship. We get to, we want to. I don't have to read the Bible when I wake up in the morning. I want to know what God has to say. Why? Because I love God. And more importantly, he loves me. And so I get into his word out of love, not out of fear. But Satan always motivates out of fear. And most people who will break their convictions don't break their convictions because of what they believe or not believe. They break their convictions because they're afraid not to. Because of fear, motivation. And the Bible says that's a sign of the end times. And the first goal of the enemy, and this is why the book of Daniel is a very prophetic book with modern day application, is you're going to be faced with a time in your life. And I'm going to show you, or I believe this is happening right now in our world, where you're going to have to choose. You're going to be forced to worship something, to serve something, to do something that goes against your beliefs. And if you don't, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be consequences. So what do we do? Let me show you the same story with a little bit of twist in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. So they concluded. Now, who is this, this they, this, this group of people? Well, again, Daniel served under four kings. This is King Darius now. If you understand the geography, the Medes and the Persians were east of Babylon. And the Medes and the Persians, basically modern-day Iran, they invade Babylon, they take over, and now the new king is King Darius. And remember King Nebuchadnezzar, he hated everyone. Now, he respected what Daniel could do for him, but he hated Daniel. Darius actually liked Daniel, loved Daniel, actually promoted Daniel, and actually believed Daniel was a man of God. And the other officials, the other, the other you know, court officials that worked in the royal court, they were jealous of Daniel. They didn't like Daniel. They wanted to get rid of Daniel. And so they're, so they're concluding, and they're conniving, and they're, they're trying to set Daniel up. And that's what's happening here. And here's their plan. They say, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. I love that. 
I mean, this guy is so pure. He's so holy. He, he's so honest. He's so trustworthy. He operates with such integrity and excellence that we can't find him doing anything wrong. The only way we can catch him is if we discredit his religion. That's the only way we can do it. We've got to discredit his religion because we're not going to catch him doing anything wrong because he's just too honest and he just operates in so much integrity. I love that. Verse 6, so the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, and governors that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you. Now, remember in the first story, they're being forced to worship this, this false god, this idol. They're being forced to worship something other than God. In this story, not only are they forced to worship something else, but they're also told you're not allowed to worship your God. Not only do you have to worship this, but we're going to make it illegal for you to worship your God. And again, I'm going to show you that happening today. Your majesty will be thrown into the den of lions. And now your majesty issue and sign this law. So it cannot be changed an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed this into law. And so what you see is a battle over worship. There is an attack on what you're going to worship, what you're not going to worship. And you see it in both of these stories in the Bible. And I could have titled this message, the battle over worship. Because it would have been an appropriate title because this is a battle of worship and it's happening today. It happened during Daniel's day. It's going to happen in the end times, which we're going to study about. And it also happened at the beginning before Adam and Eve, there was a battle over worship. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 tells us the story of Lucifer, the, the, the morning star, the chief angel in heaven that would lead the choir of angels into worshiping and glorifying God. He was the worship leader of heaven. The Bible says, and then pride and arrogance came into his heart and evil. And he decided he wanted to be worshiped. And five times in Isaiah, he said, I will be lifted up. I will ascend. I will exalt. I will be worshiped. And so Lucifer was thrown out of heaven, becoming Satan down to earth. And many scholars, and I personally believe that this happened between the first two verses of the Bible, between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, is when Satan was thrown out of heaven. Because in Genesis 1-1, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the earth. And then in verse 2, it says, and then the earth became without form and void and dark. And so in verse 3, God has to correct everything and and says, so then let there be light. And he begins the plan of creation. And part of that plan of creation was God creating us. And so now you have on earth, you've got this unemployed cherub sitting on earth. And who do you think God gave his assignment to? Us. We took his job. Revelation says God made us for his pleasure. God made us to bring him glory and to bring him praise and to bring him worship. Why do you think God made us musical beings? I mean, we have voices that can create music. We got hands that are percussion instruments. I mean, even those of us like me that have no musical ability at all, we still like to listen to the radio because there's something about music that touches our soul. He created us as musical beings. Why do you think Satan hates you so much? Because every time Satan looks at you, you remind him of a job he once held. 
Because it was his job to bring worship, to bring glory, to bring honor and praise to the Father. And now he's lost that, and so he hates you and wants to destroy you, and he wants to take your worship away from God and say, you can't worship God. And this is how he's going to end it all. This is his plan at the end. And we're going we're gonna to look at this because the Bible tells us there's this Antichrist figure. Now, the Antichrist is this, this spirit, anything that opposes Christ. But it goes on to say there's this, this figure, this man of lawlessness that people call the Antichrist who's going to demand that you worship him. And if you don't, there's going to be consequences. So let me show you how this is all going to end. And we're just going to touch it today. And we're really going to get in deep uh, the sixth week of this series as we talk about will Jesus come back in our lifetime? And I believe, and I'll show you from the book of Daniel why I really believe he will come back during our lifetime. But today I'm just going to show you just just, just to scratch the surface of how it's all going to end. Second Thessalonians, and then I'm going to give you some practical application to this. Chapter two, verse three. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Now, why would the Bible say that? Because some of you are going to be deceived. Some of us are going to be deceived. I mean, if you weren't deceived, the Bible wouldn't say, don't be deceived. And you say, well, I'm not deceived, pastor. Well, that's exactly what a deceived person would say. I mean, if you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. I mean, you wouldn't admit it. It's, it's, it's when you don't know, when you, when, you, when you believe you're deceived, that's when you, I mean, I know this is deep theology, but you got to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. It's pretty simple. Don't let any of you be deceived for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness. This is what we believe the Antichrist figure is, is revealed. And I love the way the Bible adds this. Just in case you didn't know, here's a little footnote. The man doomed to destruction. So don't worry. He's doomed. He, it may look like he's winning. It may look like he's, he's achieving, but he's doomed to destruction. He's going to lose. We're going to win. That's all you need to know. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship. Remember the two stories in Daniel 3 and 6? That's, that, that, that's what's going on right there. So that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, what does this mean? Now, now there's actually eight different views of the end times. And there's scripture to support them all and, and, and to believe them all. And so, you know, I respect all of the different views. I've got my personal one that I lean to and believe in. And I personally believe we're not going to be there for that. I, I believe in what many theologians call the rapture. It's when God takes us. I believe the rapture and the second coming are actually separate events. The Bible says the rapture happens like a thief in the night. Nobody knows. It's just, just two people are sitting there and poof, one's gone. I mean, can you imagine if Christians are flying planes and driving cars when the rapture occurs? I mean, this world is going to be in chaos. I mean, planes are going to crash, cars are going to drive off the road, because all of a sudden, just, just people are gone. Just boom, they just, they just vanish. They just appear. And let me give you a piece of advice. If you miss the rapture, don't take the mark of the beast. We're going to get into that in just a moment. But if you do miss the rapture, don't take the mark of the beast. I just want to give you some advice. Can you imagine what Sunday will be like the day after or the Sunday after the rapture? This place will be packed. I just won't be here. But I mean, I tell you, people will be like <laughs> fighting to get in to figure out what in the world's going on. I remember that guy talking about it. So I, I personally believe that the rapture happens. Then the seven years of tri tribulation begins. Now, the seven years of tribulation is basically this Antichrist figure we believe is going to be this charismatic world leader who's going to bring world peace, who's going to unite a one world government. And, and there's certain this stuff is in motion. I mean, Putin just the other day got on Russian television and held up a coin and proposed it to be the one world currency that will fix all the crumbling economies of the world. So some of this stuff is in motion right now. And so this charismatic 
prophetic figure is going to unite the world. He's going to rebuild the temple in Israel so that the Jews can go back to temple worship right in Jerusalem. And then right on the 50 yard line at three and a half years, right in the middle of the seven year tribulation, he's going to get up, reveal who he really is and say, just kidding, put up a gold statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem, require everybody to worship him because it's always about a battle of worship. And let me show you that in Revelations. Revelations chapter 13. Begin in verse 14. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast. Because people are going to love this guy. I mean, he's cares. I mean, no one's going to know he's the Antichrist. They're just going to love him because he's this charismatic world leader that unites the world and brings peace to the world. And he's going to do all these incredible miracles. He deceived all the people who belong to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to this statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. Again, there's that fear motivation. Verse 16. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. That's what we call the mark of the beast. You have a mark on your hand or on your forehead, and many people believe it's going to be a microchip, and the technology already exists. There's already nightclubs in Holland right now that if you want to be on the VIP list, you go to the doctor, they implant a chip in your hand, and you don't have to bring a credit card, you don't have to bring an ID, you show up, they scan your hand at the door, and you're in. And so basically, you got this mark of the beast, and and, and look at the motivation for the mark of the beast. Look at the next verse, verse 17. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. And at the end of verse 18, it says his number is 666. Six is the number of man. God created man on the sixth day, basically exalting man above God. So basically you've got this mark of the beast, which people believe will be a microchip. The technology already exists. They're already using it in parts of the world. And you show up at Target, you got your groceries, you got the stuff you need, you get to the checkout line and boop, and you just kind of scan your head across the thing and you kind of move on. And look at the, the motivation as financial insecurity. You won't be able to buy or sell. How smart is Satan? He, well, Satan knows what the number one God is. It's money. Satan knows the number one competition for the human heart is money. He knows if he can, if he can make you, you're not going to be able to buy food for your children if you don't take the mark of the beast. He knows how to get us. He knows the number one thing competing with the human heart. And I thought about this the other day. I mean, we have Christians today who struggle with 10%, the tithe. And they think they're going to stand up when you're required to get a mark of the beast. I mean, I mean, let's, let's just be honest. I mean, we got we to gotta understand that, that money is a false God promising what only God can deliver. And Satan knows that. And that's what he actually uses in the end time to force you to worship him. This, this fear of not being able to buy and sell. And you'll lose your life if you don't worship. But again, it's not just about a mark. It's about worship. Satan wants you to worship him. He wants you to exalt him above God. And so listen, if, if the book of Daniel is prophetic, it's warning us about end times and things to come. Then what can we learn from all of this? Because right now it's a little freaky and I'm a little like, you know, this is a little creeping me out a little bit. And I get it. I understand. I mean, how do I apply this tomorrow morning when I go to work? So let me give you two things that the spirit of the Antichrist wants from you. Two things that the spirit of the Antichrist wants you to do. Number one, wants you to exalt man above God. Wants you to exalt man above God. Put man first. God doesn't know what he's talking about. God is old fashioned. The Bible is a book written thousands of years ago. It doesn't apply today. Man, man is God. And we live in the most hedonistic society on the face of earth. 
I mean, I mean, we are just racked with hedonism here in America. What is hedonism? Hedonism is my feelings are right. Whatever I feel is right. There's no basis of right and wrong. Don't tell me that's wrong. Don't tell me I can't do that. It's whatever I feel. I am led by my feelings. My feelings are right. If I feel that we should, we should redefine the definition of marriage, then it's my feelings. It's not the Bible that God's not right. We exalt man above God. It's what we feel is right. That's what's right. There's no basis of right and wrong. And see, that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants us to exalt our feelings above God, to exalt man above God. Don't worship God. Worship anything but God. He doesn't care what you worship as long as it's not God. He doesn't care if you worship your kids or you worship your hobbies, you worship your sports, you worship your golf. He don't care as long as it's not God getting your worship. And let me just say, God doesn't care if you have other loves. God doesn't care if you play golf as long as you don't put those other loves ahead of him. As long as you don't love those loves more than you love him, it's okay. I actually did a message last year where golf can actually bring you closer to God. I mean... Timothy says he gave us all things for our pleasure and enjoyment. So if you'll play God with the right attitude, which is simply saying thank you and recognizing where it came from, it could draw you. Now, it doesn't draw me closer because where I hit the ball, uh, it just doesn't bring me closer to God. I just get angry when I play golf because it just doesn't go well for me. But there's coming a battle in the world over worship of what you will worship and that we will force you to violate your beliefs And it's already happening. And thank God that we have organizations like Hobby Lobby and Liberty University and the Catholic Church that are standing up to the government and saying, no, you cannot force us to violate our Christian beliefs. Because right now you have the government imposing this government mandated health care, saying that you have to supply abortion inducing drugs to your employees, even though that violates your biblical beliefs. And if you don't, we're going to throw you into a fiery furnace and the fiery furnace they're threatening with is a million dollar a day fine right now they're being threatened we will find you a million dollars a day if you don't supply abortion inducing drugs to your employees and violate your biblical beliefs and so hobby lobby the catholic church and liberty university said well fine get to finding then get to finding but we're not going to bend a knee to you we're not going to violate our biblical beliefs for you and I believe we need to stand. I don't believe we need to be ugly. We don't need to be those, those, those crazy nuts picketing and protesting everything. But I believe we need to stand. We need to stand respectfully. We need to stand boldly. We need to stand with love. And I'm sur- sorry, what the world calls a fetus, I call a human being. Because my Bible says, before God formed you in your mother's womb, he knew you. You were alive to him. You were a person. And so we need to begin to stand for what the Bible says is right and wrong and not our hedonistic feelings. What we decide is right and wrong. What we agree is right and wrong. We need to have a basis for truth. So what do these Hebrew boys do? Let's let's see how they handled this. Let's go back to chapter 3. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. I love that. We don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into a blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. And then I love verse 18. I love verse 18. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. And this is, this, this is what I see Hobby Lobby and the Catholic Church right doing, doing right now. But even if he doesn't, 
We want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. We're not going to do it. We're not. If we die, we die, but we're not going to worship anything but the one true God. We're not going to violate our biblical beliefs for you. And if you fine us a million dollars a day and you make us go bankrupt and you put us out of business, then go for it. We're, we're going to serve the one true God. So don't be deceived. You're going to be asked. You're going to be even some of you forced to do something that violates your biblical beliefs, that goes against your faith. And it's going to be motivated through fear. And there's going to be horrible consequences involved. And you're going to have to make a decision. So first off, they said, you're forced to worship this other God. Second, they said, not only that, but you're not allowed to worship your God. It's illegal to worship your God. Number two, stop the worship of God. That's the second thing the spirit of the Antichrist wants to do is stop you worshiping your God. Not only does he want you to worship anything else, he wants to stop you from worshiping your God. And this is already happening. There there are people right now writing legislation to stop you from believing what you believe. And if you don't believe me, in Canada, they have already written into legislation, passed law in Canada, classifying the Bible as hate speech. And if you read portions of the Bible out loud in Canada, you can be arrested for hate crime. And do you think America is that far behind? See, not only do you have to worship this, but we're going to make it illegal for you to believe that. Stop the worship of your God. Look at how Daniel handles this in chapter 6, verse 10. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, I love this. Hey, Daniel, it's illegal for you to pray to your God. Daniel, you can't pray anymore. What are you going to do? He goes home, kneels down in his usual place upstairs, makes sure the windows are wide open so everybody could see. I'm not going to be no closet Christian. I'm going to open up the windows. And as I've always done, he prays three times a day, just as he always done, giving thanks to his God. He didn't miss a beat. Daniel, you can't do that. It's illegal. He didn't miss a beat. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone divine or human except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied, the decision stands. It's an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. Now, you need to understand, this really troubled King Darius, because Darius loved Daniel. He didn't want this to happen. He tried to find a way out of this. In fact, the Bible says Darius was so torn up over this that they put Daniel in the pit. They put the stone over the pit. Darius stayed up all night long praying and fasting and worrying about Daniel. And then as soon as morning come, they move the stone away. Darius runs to the pit. Daniel, Daniel, are you okay? Did your God protect you? And Daniel said, I'm doing great, king. Just down here petting the kitties. And I love Darius. Darius sets up a law that everybody in the land is required to worship the God of Daniel, the God who is the one true living God and who saves from lions. Darius took all these guys that 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 conspiracy, the conspiracy guys against Daniel, threw them into the pit and the lions immediately devoured them. Yet God saved Daniel. So here's the point. What will you worship? And here's the title of today's message. Culture's greatest test. This is our culture's greatest test. What are you going to worship? What's going to have first place in your life? And let me ask you a question. How do you know how you're doing? 
Let's take a little worship checkup this morning. Let's, let, let's do a let, Now, don't worry. You don't need to write it down or turn it in. But for yourself, let's take a little worship checkup and see how we're doing. And let's use Jesus as the standard. Jesus said there's one great commandment that basically sums up the entire Bible in a one commandment. So let's look at that commandment. And let, now, it's found in a couple places in the Bible. We're going to look at it at Mark chapter 12. But look at this. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That's the checkup. So let's look at this today. First off, we got our heart and our soul. What does that represent? Your affection. So the question is, what do you love the most? What do you love the most? What gets you fired up? What gets your, what, what gets your blood pumping? I mean, what has your heart and soul? What are you passionate about? I mean, what just really fires you up? You know, one of the tragedies today is if you study the Bible about what worship looked like in the Bible, it was wild. I mean, worship was wild. I mean, it was loud. I mean, they're singing, they're praising, hands up, clapping. They've got the instruments jamming. I mean, it was, it was wild. I mean, it got wild. It was so wild one time, David started streaking down the middle of the street. It got so wild. I mean, worship in the Bible was passionate. There was heart and soul to it. You know what's sad? If you ask the average Christian in America today, what does the Bible say about worship? You know what responses you would get? Well, it's quiet. It's somber. It's reverent. It's solemn. That's not what the Bible says. Well, what does Satan do? Satan wants to rob the heart and soul out of worship. I was watching the NBA finals and I'm not a Heat fan. I was going for San Antonio. But at the end of the game, game seven, I mean, them Miami fans went crazy. I mean, they're cheering, they're shouting, they got hands up. I mean, people are taking their shirts off. I mean, they're just, they're just going for it. And I felt like God spoke to me. That's what the Bible says about worship. That's what worship is supposed to look like, according to the Bible. It's passionate. There's heart. There's soul. And it just, one of the things I just never get, you'll have guys, they'll go to a football game on Saturday. Yeah, they'll paint themselves. They'll take their shirts off. They'll go nuts. And then they come to church on Sunday. It's a little rowdy for me in there. I mean, where's the heart and soul out of where I'm not going to give a sports team more passion than I'm going to give my God. And again, God doesn't care if you have other loves as long as you don't love them more than him. Fortunately for me, I love God's team. I'm a Dodger fan. They give you nothing to cheer about. (laughs) They will never tempt you away from God. I mean, they are so miserable to cheer for. Every 10 years, I get a little bit of hope, and then it's just crushed in the first round of the playoffs. So that's how I know they're God's team. (laughs) Second thing here, mind. Mind your attention. And here's a good question. What do you think about the most? What do you think about the most? Problems, stress, insecurity, money, play. What, what, what do you dwell on the most in your mind? What are you putting into your mind the most? Now, some of you can't figure out why you got all these issues, and yet you're watching this filth on television constantly, putting in the world's values and the world's morals and all this, this just garbage on television. You're not spending any time in God's Word, and then you wonder what's wrong with you. Why isn't God speaking to me? Why isn't God doing anything in my life? Well, you're not with God. You're with the world. 
And let me be very clear. This is not a legalistic message about what you can and can't do. So, so we're not going to tell you what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, what you're allowed to watch, what you're not. That's not my job as your pastor. My job is to get you connected to the Holy Spirit. He'll speak to you. He'll tell you what you should be doing and shouldn't be doing and what glorifies God and what, what builds you up and strengthens your faith. That's not my job. I'm not going to so don't come ask me, can I watch this? Can I do that? Can I go there? I'm not going to tell you. And don't get legalistic over this. The, the power of all of this is grace. But what are you thinking about the most? And then lastly, your strength, your abilities. What do you do the most? Where are you putting the majority of your energy? What do you do the most? Where's your time? Well, I just don't have time to be on the dream team. I don't have time to serve in God's house. I've got, you know, where's your free time going? Who's first in your life? Who's number one? Where's your energy? Do you love God with all your heart and your soul? Do you love God with your mind? Do you love God with your strength? Basically, who gets the best of all of those areas? What are you giving the best of your strength to? What are you giving the best of your mind to? What are you giving the best of your heart and soul to? Because we are notorious in America, especially here in North County. We're notorious for making sure we include God in our life, but we're certainly not going to give him the best of our life. Think about that for a moment. We are notorious to include God. Well, we need to go to church. We're good people. We need to have, you know, God on Sunday. There he goes. But we certainly aren't going to give God the best. We're not going to give him the best of our mind. We're not giving him the best of our strength. We're not giving him the best of our heart and soul. We got got that reserve for our golf or our hobbies or our passions or our kids or or anything else. We're just not going to put God first. You're, You're just asking too much of me. We all want God when we need him, but we definitely don't want to make him first. And let me just be honest. If God's not at the top of your list, don't fool yourself. He's not on your list. Because a holy God cannot allow himself to take second place or third place or fourth place in your life. So I'm going to close with two quick thoughts. First off, who you will not worship. Who are you not going to worship? Who are you not going to worship? Because there's coming a day. And I really believe in our lifetime where we're going to be asked and even forced to worship something, to do something that violates our biblical beliefs. What are you going to do? And here's a, here's a verse of encouragement for you in 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to to him. See, if you're committed to God, you have nothing to worry about. The end time is going to be a piece of cake. Why? Because God's going to strengthen you. You're going to overcome. God's going to win. Remember, he's doomed to destruction. He's not going to win. It may look like he's winning, but he's not going to win. So if your heart's committed to God, you got nothing to worry about because he's going to strengthen you. He's going to empower you. If God's first in your life, you got nothing to worry about. And then the last thought, who you will worship. First, who are you not going to worship? And then second, who are you going to worship? Who you will worship? Because God's looking for worshipers. Jesus is saying, hey, do you want to worship me? Give me your heart and soul. 
You want to put me first? Give me your heart and soul. Give me your mind. Give me your, give me your strength. That's what it means to worship me. Worshiping me isn't giving me an hour on Sunday morning. Worship me is your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, making me first in your life. That's what salvation is, is restructuring your life to reflect God's number one. God's first in my finances. God's first in my time. God's first in my week. God's first in my family. As for me and my house, we're putting God first. This is what God's looking for. I'll close with this. John 4, 23. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. Leave that up for me. Let me ask you a question as we close. And I want you to answer this in your heart today. Does this reflect your life? And don't get legalistic. I'm not talking about being perfect. My heart is committed to God. He's number one, but I still make mistakes. That's not what I'm talking about. So I grew up in a, in a legalistic church that I had to get saved every week. And every weekend I was going to hell, it seemed like. I mean, I get saved and then I tell a lie and then I had to go get saved again. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a commitment of your heart that God's number one. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you don't make it, but is God. And you know whether God's number one or he's not. Does this, the father's looking for those who will worship him that way. So where are you? Where are you? Because there's going to be a test, culture's greatest test, and it's going to be about worship, the battle of worship. Who are you going to worship? So would you just close your eyes with me this morning? Every eye closed. I want you to have time to let this sink in for just a minute. And I want to ask you, is God number one in your life? I don't take it for granted. There may be people here. This is your very first time in a Christian church. And you don't fully understand what's going on, but you know it's real. And you feel something going on in your heart and you can't quite explain it. Because there's a battle for your heart right now. And God is saying, please give me your life. And what I want to tell you about God today, if this is your first time in a Christian church, God does not want to be your religion. He wants to be your father. He's building a family and he wants to invite you to be a part of his family, but you have to decide to put him first. And then there's other people here today that you can honestly say, you know, there was a time in my life where God had first place, but it's, he's just not first place anymore. I'm just not there anymore. For whatever reason, I'm not there anymore. Maybe you got caught up in life. You got caught up in pleasures or hobbies, or maybe, maybe you met a hypocrite in the church and they really hurt you. And you blame God for what some human did. I don't know. You could be a number of different situations. But today, if you honestly looked at your heart, God's just not first. It doesn't, it doesn't reflect in your life that he has first place. And today, God wants you to hear this loud and clear. Come home. Come home. God wants you back. God wants you back. And so if you're in either category and you just need to make a decision today to put God first, because for whatever reason, he's not first in your life. You need, to, you need to make a step that we call salvation, surrendering your life to God, becoming a Christian, what Jesus called being born again. 
That's all this is, is being born again. It's, it's when you make a decision to put God first, you become born again. And so if that's you this morning, with every eye closed, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or even talk out loud. This is a moment between you and God. I just want to pray with you. So if that's you today, with every eye closed, would you raise your hand and say, I'd like to join you in prayer this morning to put God first. Right now, raise your hand across this room. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The prayer is simple. The first part of this prayer, and I want you to say this in your own words, say this in your heart, God can hear your heart, is just make a decision in your heart to put God first. Say, God, I decide today to put you first in my life. So right now in your own words, tell God you're making a decision to put him first. The second part of that prayer is to ask him for forgiveness. To say, God, forgive me. I've made mistakes and I need your forgiveness today. And the third part of that prayer is to say thank you. Just express your gratefulness to God for what he's done for you. Just just say, God, thank you. That's it. You can look up for just a moment. If you prayed that prayer today, I would encourage you to take one more step on your own. On your connection card, there's two boxes. One says, I'm committing my life to Christ. One says, I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. I encourage you to check whatever box applies to you. Drop it off in one of our tithe and offering boxes as you leave. We want to support you in the decision you made today. We want, to, we want to just surround you with the family to help you walk out that decision. We also have these books outside. It says, now what? It's a great question. When you put God first in your life, now what? What do I do next? This book is a very simple book that will help answer the next steps of what you do. And then lastly, if you do not have a Bible, please let us give you a Bible today. It would be the greatest honor of our church to give you a Bible. We believe everybody should have a hard copy of the Bible. It'll change your life. It's powerful. Read it with us. Read the book of Daniel. It's a fun book to read. Twelve chapters. You can read it in about an hour. It's just a really a fun book to read as we're studying the book of Daniel as a church family. So if you don't have a Bible, pick up the Bible. Our reading plan is outside. And then as you leave today... Our uh, dream team will be at the doors with the, the uh, small group catalogs so you can find a small group and join us this summer and build a family. Stand with me as we close today. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you for the book of Daniel. Lord, it does cut us. It is sharper than a two-edged sword and it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. But we thank you for that because we need to be prepared. We need to be warned. We need to make some adjustments in our life, God. So we thank you that you've given us your word to help us adjust our life to where it should be. So let this book be a challenge to us and an encouragement to us. And right now, God, I just pray against the spirit of legalism. It'd be very easy to turn this message into a legalistic doctrine. God, I pray against that right now. Let grace cover this room. That people would understand we don't have to earn our way. We don't, we, we don't love you and serve you because we're scared to miss the rapture. God, we love you and serve you because you're good. Because we have a love relationship with you. Let that be the motivation of our life, not fear. So we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll see you next week.